I'm Dr. Jesse James, and you're listening to Gospel Tangents. The best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. I'm excited to interview Dr. Jesse James. He's a research psychologist at Graceland University in Lamona, Iowa. We're going to talk about the scientific perspective on spiritual phenomena. So it's going to be a fantastic conversation. We'll get into artificial intelligence, free will, um, even Jana Reese's research on the next Mormons. So it's going to be a fascinating conversation. You don't want to miss it. Check it out. All right, well, welcome to Gospel Tangents. I'm excited to have the outlaw, Dr. Jesse James. <laughs> pew, pew. <laughs> so anyway, could you tell us, tell us a little bit more about yourself and where are we? Yeah, so um, we are right now in Lamoni, Iowa. This is my home uh, now for the first time. Uh, we have moved away from the West, where Mormonism is pretty strong. The, the Bergamite branch of Mormonism is pretty strong. And uh, uh, we've just come out here to Lamoni so I could teach at Graceland University, which is the university that is sponsored by uh, the Community of Christ. So it's the Community of Christ version of BYU. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, is it as, as conservative as BYU? It's not even close to as conservative. <laughs> It's incredibly liberal. It's um, uh, and, and like there were some comparisons that I expected to be a lot more, uh, like a, a lot more parallel than they than they have been. Um, like for instance, here at Graceland University, hardly any of our students are Community of Christ members. Maybe like I think an estimated twenty percent are members of the Community of Christ, whereas like ninety nine percent of students at BYU are Latter Day Saints. Right. Um, uh, Took it on the football team. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, so because Graceland is so focused on their athletics program, kind of like how BYU's football program is, you know, more interdenominational, uh, Graceland University has all kinds of athletics and we pull in students to play those sports who are, you know, many of them are not members of the community of Christ. Lots of the faculty are not members of the community of Christ. They're, I mean, because we live here in this town that is the, that for for a hundred years was the, the headquarters of the community of Christ church, uh, a lot of people here are community of Christ, but also a lot of people here are kind of ex-community of Christ or no longer really participating. Um, so we've got a lot of people on campus, a lot more professors I think are community of Christ than students are, um, but still you, maybe 50 to 60 percent of faculty are not members of the church. Oh, so more than a half of them? Yeah, I would, I would estimate. Well, you're because you're LDS. Yeah, so I'm LDS, and it is yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So um, uh, so we've got you know um, you know, uh, like my boss at the institution is uh, is Catholic. Um, many other yeah many other people in the um, even our, even our president president draves right now is uh, is not a member of the community of christ she's the first president of the of the university that has not been a member of the church oh, so wow. yeah so um like it's i mean uh they still you know put a lot of emphasis on their uh you know on their faith statement and their you know and their their value statements and things like that but it's not like it's not been so um, so focused on denominational membership anymore, right? It's it's a lot more about like, are you willing to live up to the to the standards and the and the kind of the, the their version of the honor code that they have. Well, I was going to ask about the honor code. Yeah, because the community of Christ, word of wisdom, isn't such a big deal. Yeah, and like uh, so many facets are not like they, like they don't they don't have the same like standards and regulations that the Latter Day Saint. Uh, Church has. And so, they don't, anybody for can instance, go to like, temple. They don't have. have don't yeah, have yeah, exactly. They don't even exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't. Even, it's not even a thing. So, um, you've got lots of people. Uh, like, like, for instance, um, 
sexual relationships outside of marriage is not uh, is not a frowned upon thing as far as I'm aware. Like, what's important is that when you have sex, that you're doing it in uh, committed relationships, that it's consensual, things like that. So there's not even like an honor code on campus that prevents students from having sexual relationships with each with each other before they're married. Real place. It's very very different from what you'd expect at BYU. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. So it's you know it's it's a it's a very pro- like just a progressive version of Christianity. So it's, you know, it's focused a lot more on, um, uh, on kind of the liberal concerns of, of avoiding harm to other people, caring for other people, um, but not the conservative concerns that, you know, or, you know, things like loyalty to your in-group or things like, um, um, I know they're big into peace. They've got the peace plaza and yeah, their independence yeah. and like world peace and, yeah. And, you know, LGBT is okay. Well, the interesting thing about that is LGBT is okay if it's okay with the law of the land. Uh-huh, yeah, yeah. Which I think is a really strange revelation, but... Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. you know, we've, we're very correlated in LDS. Yeah, 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 it seems foreign to us, but if you're going to be international, it's almost the only viable position you can take, where you have to, like, you have to reconcile the fact that, um, you know, that different countries are going to have different laws, and so, um, you know, what's, uh, what's acceptable in one place might not be in another, and therefore you have to have, uh, you know, you have to have like if you're going to have like if you decide that you're going to allow for gay marriage or you know other liberal practices they can only be acceptable morally if they're consistent with the law of the land right so it seems like if you're going to open it up like the only way you can do that is to is to do what the community of christ has done not only that by the way before we get too far but the polygamy is is actually okay now in the community of Christ, right? Yeah, if, yeah. You're, if you're in I, India or Africa, where yes, it's legal. Yes, exactly, where it's legal. Yeah, and I don't think they encourage it. I think they... Uh, I've even heard that they... Um, uh, that they they um, encourage people not to like uh, marry additional spouses after they become right. members of the church, but like if you've already married, you know, a few wives, then you can be baptized and, just you know... Just don't take any more. Just don't take any more, yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Do you ever see the LES church doing such a thing? We've spent so much effort to try and like distance ourselves from polygamy that even in places right now where there are people who are interested in meeting with the missionaries, uh, you know, who are already married in polygamous relationships, they just don't, you know, they, they, we, we, we discourage our missionaries from teaching them and we don't, we don't allow them to be baptized, you know? So would it ever happen? Perhaps, but it just seems, it just seems really unlikely given, you know, given like how hard we've tried to distance ourselves from the practice. Right. Yeah. So who's the most famous alumni from Graceland University? <laughs> yeah, so Bruce or Caitlyn Jenner, yeah, went to Graceland University. Isn't that and, crazy? Uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty fun. I want to um, go to Jenner Field, I can't wait. Yeah, yeah, so... Bruce Jenner Field, I understand they take the Bruce off. Yeah, they took the Bruce off, though uh, originally they asked him, her, like, should they, you know, should they change the name of the field? And Caitlin said, no, like, when I was at Graceland and, you know, when I was an athlete, I was Bruce Jenner, so there's no reason to change the name of the field. So they ended up changing it, but not at Caitlin's request. Yeah, well, now it's just Jennerfield. Right? Yeah, it's just Jenner, Jennerfield, yeah. I, I can't wait to go there. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty <laughs> neat. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty neat to see the heritage there. Um, any other things we should know about Graceland? Um... 
I'm trying to think. Uh, how know, is it started... to be? How many LDS faculty are at Grace? I'm. I'm. Uh, so I think I'm the only person there right now who's LDS. Um, there is another person in our ward who worked at the library for a number of years and uh, is now working in a in another local library nearby. But um, uh, but that's the only other person that I'm aware of who was a member of the church working at the at the university. Wow. Yeah. There there may have been others through the years, but. But they get along with you, though. Yeah, it's no, it's they've been so open. The, you know, the community of Christ is so uh, pluralistic and open that you know th- it's not about denominational membership for them. It's really about the relationship that you develop with Christ. And so, you know, they, as far as I'm aware, they accept other um, Christian baptisms, and uh, other Christians accept their baptisms, and uh, in, in much the same way that every Christian denomination essentially accepts each other's baptisms at this point. Um, uh, unless you're, you know, kind of an isolationist branch like like the LDS Church. Uh, so, like in the community of Christ, um, you know, there's, you know, we've got people from all different faiths who are working there, who are attending there. Um, you know, you have people who attend the community of Christ congregations who have never been baptized there, but you know, are like in full fellowship, and it's, yeah, it's it's a really pluralistic organization. So they, yeah. they treat you well. Yeah, they, they're really respectful. I just, I really enjoy working here. It's a, it's a lot of fun. Well, cool. Well, tell us, let's get a little bit of your background, especially your academic history. Sure. Where did you get your bachelor's and master's and PhD? Yeah, so um, uh, I finished, so I grew up in Washington State, and uh, I finished my bachelor's and master's degrees both at Central Washington University, which is a tiny little town in the center of the state. Uh, I went there because they had what's called the Chimpanzee and Human Communications Institute. Um, so they had, they, they had some chimpanzees who had been cross-fostered, meaning they had been raised as if they were human infants. Okay, so they uh, they had been kind of raised in a trailer, and they had had human parents um, who like who spoke sign language with them. They're like Jane Goodall, <laughs> right? It's really it's so fascinating. Wow. So there's um there's like these uh, so the the chimpanzees um, uh, prior to the to this group had been tried they, they had been raised cross fostered by humans. Um, uh, but they had been taught English, and chimpanzees do not have the same vocal structure that we have, so they can't learn the same kinds of words. They can't construct the same sounds that we can make. So, like, one chimpanzee, for instance, learned only to say four words, mama, papa, cup, and up. Okay, those are only phonemes that they could construct. So they could understand more words than that, they just couldn't produce more words than that. So that was kind of a failed experiment. And then they decided, well, chimpanzees probably can learn to sign, even if they can't speak English, right? They have the same hands we do, well, similar hands. They have, their thumbs are much further down on their wrists than ours, but um, but they essentially have, you know, hands enough to be able to sign with, right? And so they decided to raise them as deaf human infants. And the, the principle here is you don't teach them sign language as like, a party trick. You raise them naturally speaking sign language in naturalistic conversation like you would raise a human infant. You don't like tutor and train an infant on natural language. You just speak with them and they pick it up naturally, right? So that was the principle with these chimpanzees. They were, uh, you would like raise them and try to, you know, just interact with them and see if they picked it up. And um, several of these chimpanzees ended up learning sign language like reasonably well, like a couple hundred signs uh, and uh, kind of telling telegraphic speech was just like the kind of speech you hear from a toddler <clears throat> where you know a toddler might put together a couple words you know they might say like uh like you know 
uh, want more or yeah exactly so you drop a lot of articles and and, and things like that um, but you kind of you know you put together like a telegraph would that's why it's called telegraphic speech because like a telegraph would kind of cut out all the unnecessary language then you know you you uh, uh, you just kind of uh, you just piece together the necessary words in famous so, that means more than famous yeah yeah <laughs> so um uh, so these chimpanzees uh, ended up, you know, kind of going through this this cross-fostering study in the 70s, and then the study was kind of concluded. We, we, we concluded that, you know, they would be able to master approximately toddler-level language skills, but no more than that, no matter how old they got. And so after that was done, then, you know, chimpanzees live for, you know, 40, 50, 60 years, depending, you know, and then what do you do with them? So, uh, so these chimpanzees were essentially retired to an in a research institution in Washington State, where they lived out the rest of their lives and participated voluntarily when we could convince them to in other language studies. So we would kind of interact with them in sign language. We would, you know, we cared for them, of course, and we would we had video cameras filming all their interactions with each other. And so we would kind of like code videotapes and stuff for humorous interactions or you know the way that they would use vocabulary words. One one chimpanzee uh, would always sign the word black to indicate uh, something was cool, right? It was like, it was, she just liked the color black, and so whenever something else was cool, she would sign, oh, that's so black, you know? <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, those kinds of linguistic uh, nuances and, and, you know, the the interchanges that they would have, that, that's the kind of stuff that we studied at that institution. So that's why I chose to study in Washington wow. State at that, at that university. And I only ended up staying there for a little while, like about a year and a half or so before I ended up kind of bowing out because um, some political things going on with the uh, with the director there at the institute, and uh, so I didn't end up doing my master's thesis there like I anticipated. But um, uh, so was this like languages, or what was your bachelor's in? Yeah, so uh, so my bachelor's, master's, and PhD are all in psychology, um, not clinical psychology, research psychology. Um, so I was studying, uh, intending to study, you know, the 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 psychology of language, and so my master's thesis ended up being about sign language, uh, but it was more uh, it was studying the memory capacity of interpreters of American Sign Language. That's what I ended up studying. Um, uh, I had intended at some point to like go to Gallaudet University where the, where the deaf uh, congregate in the United States and, uh, um, uh, and kind of learn to be a clinical psychologist for deaf people. Um, but I didn't end up following through with that. So. Instead, yeah, so I speak sign pretty well, like not, you know, not perfectly, but but pretty pretty fluently. I was disappointed not to serve a sign language speaking mission. I wonder if we should do this. <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh... We got subtitles, it'll be okay. <laughs> right. Yeah, people who, if you can't hear, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll fill you in. Um, uh, let's see. So um, then I ended up going to BYU instead for my PhD. Oh, and okay. uh, yeah, so I uh, finished my PhD there. Rise and shout. Yeah, under doc, Dr. Brock Kerwin, um, who is a, a researcher of memory. So uh, my, my emphasis was behavioral neuroscience. So I study a lot about the brain um, and just kind of like how that mostly... So some people study the brain in abnormal ways, like what goes wrong with the brain, and I study the brain primarily in normal functioning ways. Like, how does the brain allow us to do everyday things that we all t that we kind of take for granted? So my emphasis was was memory during that time, uh, and after I graduated, I started to study more uh, uh, religion generally, and emphasizing a little bit, not a ton, but a little bit in the neurobiology of memory, or in neurobiology of religion and spirituality. I mean. 
See, now that's fascinating to me because I think there's a, um, a field of study that says free will does not exist. Yeah, yeah. Neuroscientists are... Very non-Mormon. Yeah, yeah. So neuroscientists are um, uh, not philosophers and therefore not really equipped to, to say one way or the other, right? Um we do, like, neuroscientists have collected some evidence that suggests maybe free will is an illusion. Like, it seems like we make decisions in our brain before we're consciously aware of them. And that suggests maybe we're, like, if we've already made the decision and then we kind of post hoc rationalize the decision in a conscious way, and that's all we're actually doing is, like, justifying the decision that was already made by our brain, then maybe we're not actually free after all. Maybe our brain is kind of automatically responding to the environment, and maybe we are just, you know, giving ourselves the illusion, just, you know, because we have metacognition where we can reflect back on our own thinking processes, maybe that allows us the illusion of free will uh, that maybe perhaps other animals don't have. But um, uh, but that's kind of a question that, despite the despite the scientific evidence, really requires integration with philosophy in order to answer. And because most neuroscientists are not sufficiently trained in philosophy, it's not a question they can answer, right? So, as an example, like I like, it doesn't matter to me how many studies. So I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty hardcore scientist, but it doesn't matter how many studies come out to suggest that. Uh, that free will is an illusion. I will never not believe in free will. Like, as a philosopher, as a theologian, I am convinced that free will exists, independent of the empirical evidence. So, I, I just, I think... Um, Doesn't that show your bias? It could. It could show my bias, but it's also, it also, to me, shows the limitations of science. Like, science is a pretty impressive tool, but given... Uh, like being a scientist, I can also look at it and I can say, mm, there's like we, like people who are too radical of scientists are as theocratic about their science as dogmatic. Or, yeah, dogmatic about their science as yeah, as as a theologian might be. Are, are you familiar with Steven Pinker from Harvard? Yeah, yeah. He's a phenomenal speaker. I love what him. What do you think of Pinker? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I so he is an expert on a bunch of different things. Uh, one of the things that he's primarily uh, uh, that he primarily studies is the psychology of language, wow. and uh, and he is um, what's called a nativist. In other words, he believes that we have born within us from the very first moments of life, uh, kind of a, an empty language module that that allows children to pick up language faster and easier than they should be capable of picking it up given basic principles of behaviorism. So, um, uh, he, he kind of thinks that we have just like that all, all children, regardless of what language their parents speak, they have kind of like the empty skeleton of a language and they're fitting into that skeleton, the things they're hearing from their parents. So they're ready primed sponges to pick this up in a way that they don't pick up other things more naturally. I, as I, as I've read the evidence, I disagree with that with that argument. There's a lot of there's a lot of research that shows that um, uh, that like other animals who don't have any reason to have a language module have the same capacities for picking up language sounds that we have. So like chinchillas, for instance, have been demonstrated to uh, uh, to to have the same capacity for hearing the differences in phonemes after just a few exposures that humans that human infants have. And 
nativists like Pinker have kind of pointed to this ability in infants and said, wow, this like this suggests that, you know, we have like this innate fantastic ability that's unique to language. Well, if chinchillas have it too, like probably it's not a unique fascinating ability. It's, you know, still, still, you know, impressive, but not unique and probably not suggestive of an innate language module. Wow. Yeah. So we're going deep. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I didn't mean to like, get no, sidetracked no, 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 here. Dude, we're all about tangents here. <laughs> this is where the best conversations happen. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, so, so, so you think humans have free will? I do, it's yeah. Just yeah I'm pretty convinced of it. Yeah, it. I mean, it's not just a bunch of biological processes. Yeah, I mean, what? Uh, I mean, uh, here's the thing. Um, none of us can know for sure. Like, even like, no matter how much evidence comes out, like, there's never going to be a firm answer to say, yeah, this is fact or this is, you know, you know, it, it either is or isn't. Um, but we're, I mean, we're not going to know it. We're, it's, it's not something that can be determined, I don't think. Um, and in part, I mean, may, See, maybe... See, let's get some artificial intelligence, though, uh -huh. because, uh, what, cause, you know, that's kind of the new impact. Wasn't it uh, Stephen Hawking just said that we got to be careful with this, right? Yeah. I mean, is there a way where we can take a robot and give it free will? <laughs> So, uh, many neuroscientists believe that the capacity of metacognition, like to reflect back on your own thinking, is what gives us the illusion of free will, which would be the same thing for a robot. If you give a, if you give a robot or AI sufficient, like, computing power to be able to not only, like, learn, but also to reflect on its own learning, in other words, to, to, to kind of look back on itself in that way, then presumably they would develop agency. They would develop the, the feeling that they have free will, that they're sentient, right? Uh, I don't, like, uh, it doesn't seem like something that's right around the corner to me. Like, every, like, I mean, we've, we, we have this Turing test, which is like, uh, I think Alan Turing in the 70s kind of developed this test where, you know, basically the, it, it's a, it's a kind of test where if you, um, if you have a, if you have a typed conversation with, uh, with somebody, uh, on the other end of, you know, of a, pro of a computer program and it's, and you, you can't tell whether it's a human or a robot speaking to you, no matter how hard you assess, no matter what kind of questions you ask, no matter what kinds of things you say, then that would be evidence of artificial intelligence, real artificial intelligence. And if you've ever tried to like communicate with a bot today, like the best bots that exist are, they pale. I mean, you, you can, you can vet a bot in moments. Like you can automatically know this is not a person, right? Because they're not flexible enough to communicate. Uh, the computing power of the human brain is so like, like just, okay, here, here's a couple of, uh, a, a, like a couple of just anecdotes to kind of, to anchor us in, in how complex the human brain is. Um, Google recently got from, like, there was like a woman who had some brain surgery and they took out like a, a segment of her brain um, that was uh, causing seizures. Um, and in order to get to that region of the brain, they had to take out a healthy part of the brain as well. So they took this healthy part of the brain. It was like one cubic centimeter, okay? Tiny little portion of the brain, cubic centimeter. And they 
uh, kind of put it in some resin to harden it and then they sliced it in thousands of slices and then they computerized it and then they created a computer program to kind of create a, a three-dimensional uh, technological model of that segment of her brain okay the amount of time that it took to, to, to produce that, I can't remember the exact numbers, like somebody's going to fact check me here and it's going to be wrong, but it, it was something like a decade to, to produce this, uh, this computer model of a centimeter of brain, and, uh, and it took like terabytes of information. I mean, it took like an, inc like an unbelievable amount of information, and that was just to, just to represent the physical structure of that segment of brain, not even the functioning, not even the neurotransmitters or the glial cells that, you know, that, that kind of support and interact with neurons, not the, you know, the, the firing of individual nerves. None of that was represented in this terabytes of information. It was just the structure of the brain. If you wanted to represent the entire human brain, it would take something like 700,000 average computers to represent one human brain, right? Just the structure, not even the functioning. Okay, so it, it, it feels to me like, like the best AI in the world right now can't even come close to what the human brain is like capable of in, in terms of not just even function, but just structure. Like, we, like we're not even close. It's just so far off. So uh, is it possible that a thousand years from now we might be able to create artificial intelligence and uh, a thousand years from now we might realize the answer to the question, like do we have free will and maybe we create like AI that has free will? Maybe, but it's, I don't think we're even, no, I think we're nowhere close. See, this is so funny. There's a new movie out and it's got Ryan Reynolds in it. I wish I could remember what the name of it was. My kid loves it. It's a video game uh -huh. where they create this, where Ryan Reynolds is a video game character in uh -huh. the game. Uh -huh. And then he becomes sentient, basically. Ah, uh ah. -huh. And he, they refer to him as Blue Shirt Guy. I wish I could remember what the name of that movie is. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, but he kind of becomes conscious. That's, yeah. that's the whole yeah. part of the movie. Yeah. Is this this is on the Disney Channel, right? It's like Free Free Guy or something. Free Guy. Free Guy. Okay, yeah, I haven't yeah. seen it yet. Yeah, yeah you gotta I'm watch it. To it. Yeah, um, because the, the artificial intelligence in this video, because they would have human characters go into this video game, yeah, and they would rob banks or whatever. Anyway, um, and then all of a sudden they kept, they kept calling him Blue Shirt Guy. Yeah kind of become sentient and, uh -huh. and it's it's really interesting yeah yeah i think a lot of people are kind of concerned that this is around the corner and i i think it will probably happen someday but i think we're way off way off from that happening huh. yeah i could be wrong because I mean, <laughs> from the theological point of view you know it just well, transcend, transcendental human uh, Mormon, or trans, transcendental Mormon humanists, or I can't remember what they call themselves. There's like this little yeah. little group of people in Provo that, yeah. So um uh uh they, I mean, they're pretty convinced that um that all of the spiritual things we talk about are based in some kind of unknown technology as yet, and so like God is maybe an alien species or something, and they've discovered a capacity to kind of communicate with us telepathically or something and uh and um 
uh, that like when the millennial comes, it's going to be because like the, the human species has become so peaceful and so technologically advanced that we're we're capable of living in this uh, like in this trans you know this this transcendent state of of harmony and plenty. Um, and it's not going to be some metaphysical supernatural kind of intervention. It's going to be like the human species just gradually becomes better and better, like we've seen already over the past couple hundred years. So, um, well, because the thought occurs uh -huh. to me. Because supposedly you could reconstruct your ancestors just from your own memory, mm -hmm. and it almost sounds like artificial intelligence. Yeah. The the as a form of resurrection. Uh yeah yeah so the so the reason I raised this issue is because um, people of this mentality kind of believe that uh, that we're already modeled like we're not like this this uh, this what appears to us to be some biological existence is actually uh, like a like a, a simulation that's the word that I was trying to come up with yeah so uh, they they think that this is like a simulation like some advanced species kind of created this illusion for us and that you know like what feels real to us is really just a simulation so if you I mean if you're simulated anyway then why can't you become an eternal thing within a simulation right like it's not you know we're not we're not actually limited by biological constraints except that they're programmed into the system you know that's what they think so it's you know I, I'm not I'm not thoroughly thoroughly convinced by it but it, I mean it's certainly interesting food for thought so yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, you have a big statistics background, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I think you even teach a statistics class. Yeah, I have in the past, and my yeah. So my the the school that I I used to teach for Central Washington University. I had I had attended there, and then after I graduated my PhD, I went back and taught there for a few years, and um, uh, and then I kept teaching online there, and so I've taught that class more than any other psychology class, and I really love it. Um, well, that's why we get along just because we're Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so you, so you take, you have to take a lot of statistics to do what you do with, with research psychology, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, I took. Um, you know, a few classes as an undergrad, a few classes as a grad student. Um, you know, I kind of just self-taught a lot of things. You know, and whenever you come up a, against a, a statistical problem, you have data that need to be analyzed, and you know that you don't have a particular statistic in mind that's going to be able to handle these data. Then you you go and Google and you figure out, you know, what can handle these data, and then you you know you you learn how to run that statistic. So, uh, you know, a little bit self-taught as well. Once you have the foundations of statistics, you know, you can learn any any you know any additional statistical analyses you need so um uh yeah but i you know i i really i i do i love statistics i think it's so so much fun once you start to delve into the theory a little bit i this is like so boring for other people but um but i've instilled in my students a passion for for statistics because it's like once you start learning about these uh you know the, you know these uh I mean, these population distributions and uh, you know the sampling distributions from the, I mean like the sampling distribution the fundamental you know undergirding uh, uh, foundation of statistics is the most fascinating thing in the world I mean it's like this this it's, it doesn't even exist in the real world but this idea of the sampling distribution is just so fascinating well yeah and I always like to say because a lot of times I would teach freshmen and uh -huh. they have a lot of times they've been like, when am I ever going to use this? Uh -huh. So what I will do is I will give them a statistics project yeah. that they have to come up with the idea. Yeah. And then they're like, 
Yeah. Wow, this is useful. I'm yeah. Like, I told yeah, you. This I know. Is use, this is the best. I know. It's so painful because, yeah, exactly. Like, it's so painful because they, it, like, statistics carries the baggage of the rest of math. And so much of math really is not useful unless you're a mathematician, right? Like, you're never going to do it. But statistics is so different. Like, statistics right. is used all the time in everyday life. You read a, like, I, I would say maybe 25% of, uh, of, um, like news articles that you'll read will include some some form of statistics in them, and often they're descriptive statistics. But sometimes they're even inferential, and they'll you know give you an R squared or something, or a correlation, or you know, and you it, like if you don't understand what's going on there, then you can't really like you can't really grasp the concept that the that the you know the article is talking about. And oftentimes the journalists themselves don't really know what's going on, so they exactly. misreport things, and you and you're like, you know, if you're I mean, if you don't know yourself, then you're just you know you're just swallowing false information. Right. So it's I I always. I always try to encourage my students to kind of learn how to interpret a few basic kinds of statistics really well so that they can, you know, be good consumers of information. Well, because um, I know, cause, so you've got a good background in statistics, and I know Jana Reese and Benjamin Knoll did yeah, the, the yeah. book, The Next Mormons. Yeah. It was a great book and a great interview, by the yeah, way. Yeah. You guys should watch it if you haven't. Definitely. But uh, what, did, what did you think of Jana and Ben? Did, yeah, did you learn anything yeah. there? Um, yeah, so uh, Jana's, uh, Jana's work is fascinating, and... Um, uh, and I think really, uh, really important. I think it's um, uh, important in no small part because she has answered questions that um, uh, that the public has not had access to for a long time. So uh, before um, before coming to Graceland University, I worked at church headquarters in the correlation research division, and uh, there we did all kinds of studies with members of the church, and we answered already most of the questions that Jana answered. But oh. the information is considered proprietary, and you know people who work there aren't really allowed to talk a lot about what they're doing or the findings they're coming up, uh, you know, that, that they're coming up with. Um, they share it with the brethren and some project managers at the at headquarters but um, but most of the information is just kind of kept you know within within headquarters within you know kind of but behind closed doors um, and so Jana answered a lot of questions that I already knew the answer to because I was privileged to have the information you know <laughs> at my you know because because I worked there um, but uh, but most people didn't have the answer to those kinds of questions the one thing that really surprised me of what she was you know of, of what she found was really just the word of wisdom so oftentimes we don't investigate questions like at church headquarters we don't often dig into like the the worthiness issues of people's lives because it's maybe too sensitive or um, because um, we kind of leave that up to you know individual members in the Lord and individual members in their ecclesiastical leaders so we're not collecting oftentimes data about you know whether people are keeping the law of chastity or the word of wisdom or you know um, sometimes we ask like do you hold the temple recommend which is a proxy for kind of like a lot of worthiness questions but also belief questions so it's it like you can't you can't know from just seeing somebody's t temple recommend or not like you, if they have it, you know a lot about them, but if they don't, it doesn't mean that they're unworthy. It could mean something about their belief. It could mean something about one question, not, you know, so, so it's not, so it doesn't feel so sensitive to ask about, do you have a temple recommend or not, right? But we don't ask, for instance, usually, usually we wouldn't ask, like, do you pay a full tithing and, you know, things like that. So when Jana found that many people are consumed, like many self-proclaimed Mormons are consuming coffee on a regular basis, that was really surprising to me. I, I hadn't realized that. Um, it's you know when when you were interviewing Jana, um, you kind of asked her like, who does this survey represent? And she seemed to struggle to answer that question. And having read 
um, not not her whole book, but read parts of her book and having heard her speak and having answer, uh, asked her similar questions, I was surprised that it was kind of a little bit of a struggle for her to answer that because to me the answer is incredibly clear. The people that she surveyed were self-proclaimed Mormons, okay? They could be active or not. And she said 85% of our sample self-described themselves as active. But many in her sample said they were active and didn't attend church regularly. Right. Right? So this is another thing that really surprised me. Like, most of the time, people, like, like at headquarters, when I'm working, uh, you know, as a, as a researcher for the church, I define active as participating weekly or, you know, most weeks, right? So, like, usually, like... If we're trying to figure out what active members of the church look like, we'll we'll survey a bunch of members uh, who are in seat. We sometimes send out paper pencil surveys that get distributed like in second hour or something like that. Um, and so it, it gets it captures everybody who happens to be there on a particular Sunday, whether they attend every week or just every once in a while, right? But if you want to know what active members look like, we kind of screen out those people who say, I only attend every once in a while, and we just look at those people who attend like two to four times a month, and we say, this is, this is the active, this is probably what active members of the church look like today. Well, to know from Jana's research that many people consider themselves active, even though they're not attending, was also a really fascinating insight. It suggests that kind of what it means to be Mormon and how people think of themselves as like a righteous Mormon is shifting, right? Because it used to be, well, back in Brigham's era, like people thought of themselves as Mormon even if they never attended church, right? Because you just were. Like it was, it, it was similar to being Jewish. Like if you never attend you know, Jewish is, is a heritage in addition to a religion, right? So if you never attend synagogue, you still are Jewish, right? You don't have to be participating. Well, in Brigham's era, there was lots of people who considered themselves to be Mormon, even though they weren't attending church. But as we kind of like drew harder boundaries and said, like, you're not, like, you're out, you're in only if you do all these temple recommend things and only if you live these standards and only if you like pass the home teaching interview and, you know, all these kinds of things, then all of a sudden we start to have like higher standards of what it means to be a Mormon, right? And so as those standards become more and more strict, then people stop, I think, for a long time identifying as active if they're not participating and doing their own teaching and, you know, do, like doing all the stuff, right? You, you kind of think of yourself as active only if you're all in, right? But in recent years, according to Jana's research, it suggests that, you know, some people are calling themselves active even if they're not really participating, not doing hardly anything, you know? Do you have a sense, because like you said, Jenna said that 85% of people called themselves active. Do you have a sense for what percent of those group the church would agree were active versus would call them inactive? Um, okay, so um, um, I, like, y like you can learn a lot from, uh, like, there are people online who write blogs and do kind of Mormon statistics stuff. Uh, you can infer a lot from, uh, like, percentages that are reported by Pew Research when they do national studies and things like that. So I'm going to say some stuff that that can be inferred and can be learned um, just from the general population. Many people who are baptized members of the church are do not consider themselves Mormon, right? They don't. They don't mentally affiliated with the church. So if you were to give them a survey, uh, according to our numbers, according to like membership statistics, you would expect for about 2% of the U.S. population, 2 to 3% to be, uh, to, to self-report as a Latter-day Saint. What you find is about 1% report as a Latter-day Saint, one to one and a half. So about half the number uh, of people on statistics, like on our member records, actually think of themselves as a Mormon. 
Okay, so Jana's like Jana's research is applicable to that half who think of themselves as Mormon. Church records show another twice as many people who don't think of themselves as Mormon, right? Um, so of Jana's research, like what like what is it representing? Well, we know of the half who consider themselves Mormon. We've got you know some people who are participating and some people who aren't, right? And I don't remember from Jana's research what percentage of people were actively attending, like you know two to four times a month. Um, but I would I would guess just based on you know some of the broader statistics that we know that most people. Uh, well, people have a tendency to overinflate in, when answering a survey how often they do any religious thing because it's socially desirable. So they want to come across as better than they really are, right? I feel like I'm in my statistics class <laughs> teaching this thing. It's awesome. Yes. Most people don't know this, but I teach this every semester. Yeah, so, you know, you get these, you get these biased representations. People, people overestimate by about 50%. When, the, when you ask them on a survey, how often do you attend church? They kind of inflate by about 50% more often than they really do at the population level not every individual but like people like if you look at a population you can expect that that people are saying they go about 50% more often than they really do okay so if you kind of extrapolate from some of those statistics and you kind of look at you know what we what we hear people saying how often they go to church in Pew research studies you can kind of suggest that maybe half of the people who identify as Mormon are attending regularly right so Jana's research appears to me to be biased a little bit in terms of uh, sampling those people who, uh, well, not biased, I shouldn't say biased, it represents people who are both attending and not attending, right? And that's it, that's another critical reason why I love Jana's work, because she, um, uh, she is contributing to the knowledge about members who consider themselves Mormon but aren't really actively participating in what they do. So I think a lot of them are some of the kinds of people who she's finding are, you know, not participating in the, you know, not following the word of wisdom, not wearing garments and things like that. So they consider themselves Mormon, but they're not doing all the Mormony things, right? And much, much of the work that we did at the Correlation Research Division for Church Headquarters represented the active members who were attending regularly because that's who we have access to. That's who will answer a church survey if we email it to them. You know, people who are, people who are not that attached to the church who still call themselves a Mormon but aren't really participating that much they don't like, the church doesn't know much about them we don't really know that much about them they're not really that willing to take a survey from the church if it comes from somebody else if it comes from Jana Reese they might take it right but they don't I think sometimes they don't trust the church to listen to their opinion right and so um, every once in a while you know, maybe 10% of our survey respondents will be somebody who's like not actively participating. And they kind of rail against the church, like, nobody ever listens to me. And I'm reading the service and I'm just like, well, you know, I'm here, I'm listening, but you know, and I, and I'll and I convey what we're, you know, I, we really do convey what comes across in these surveys to the brethren. Um, and the fact that that doesn't end up making it to the end of the row, like through general conference, sometimes isn't because they they don't know what you're saying. It's not, not because they're not listening. It's because you know they they're torn. You know they they they're between a rock and a hard place. They can't make everybody happy. You know. Huh. So, it's I think I think a lot of people just kind of have this general sense like the brethren don't know what I'm experiencing. The brethren don't don't hear my my troubles or and, don't you know, care don't care uh and you know, i don't know what the brethren do and don't feel but i do know that the brethren are aware i do know that the brethren hear about this stuff all right well so one of the other interesting things about diana's research um was she had a 500 ex-mormons uh -huh. in her which do, do, does the church study that 
Yeah, so we have done studies about ex Mormons. Really? Um, yeah. Because uh, to me, that was cool. And I know because she said that was uh-huh. the first time anybody had ever studied ex Mormons. Yeah, yeah. So uh, certainly um, in the within the public domain, like, she, like I think her sample of 500 is a really... Um, uh, really impressive sample of, uh, you know, of, of ex-Mormons. I'm not sure. I mean, you know, uh, John DeLynn and some others were involved in this faith crisis right. research, right? And and, I, and she gave an answer why that wasn't the same, and I don't remember. Well, it was it was a self-selected sample, that's why. Uh, it wasn't representative, right. that's right, yeah. Yeah, that's, whereas yeah, Jana's was statistically significant. Yeah, it was because, statistically representative. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because she used... I don't remember who she used, but she used a national firm she, to, well, to find yeah, the people. So, yeah, so I don't remember which firm she used either, but she, um, she what she essentially did was um, she used what's called a quota sample. And a quota sample is not actually uh, like a, a probability sample. It's not perfectly representative, but it's about as good as you can get in a pot, in it, like in a, in a, you know, in a society like we live in, where basically you know what the population is supposed to look like. You know that, like, like, uh, Mormons are, you know, m- way more white than the general United States population. So we might be like 90% white. I don't remember exactly what it is, but it might be like 90% white, whereas like the general U.S. population is like 70% or 60% white, right? Um, so you collect, uh, and, and you know, like approximate age brackets of what, you know, people are participating in the church because of, you know, representative Pew research, for instance. And you know, um, uh, you know, like gender breakdowns and, you know, education breakdowns and things like that. So then you go out and you collect people who fit within these different groups. I need a person to fill out the survey who is white and has a bachelor's degree and uh, is a female and, you know, falls within the age bracket of 20 to 30, right? And so once you fill that, like once you grab that person, they fit into a quota, they fit into that group. And once you fill all your quotas, then you say, like, this wasn't actually randomly selected, but because the, the, because the, the sample that we got approximately represents the population parameters on these demographic characteristics, then you can say it's probably representative, even though we didn't collect it in a randomized way. Right. So it's, I mean, it's, it's a good, like, it's a good approach. It's about the best anybody can do when you, when you don't have access to a random sampling approach, right? So it definitely is better than... Because even with random sampling, you're going to oversample people with phones yeah. versus people yeah. who don't have phones yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah, even like the census. We spend something like $6 billion conducting the census every 10 years and it's still biased. It still underrepresents people in gated communities and underrepresents the homeless and things like that. So, you know, it's like a sample is more than adequate and it's silly that we continue to do the census because, you know, like if you just allowed the Census Bureau to to perform representative samples of every community, then it would be good enough for a fraction of the cost. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's in the Constitution, so... <laughs> we have to do it, whether it makes sense or not. <laughs> <laughs> so, what do you think about her sample of ex-Mormons? Was that pretty representative of what the Church already knows? Yeah, so, uh, you have to remember, she hasn't written that book yet, so... Um, well, she did, with the ex-Mormons. So that, so, what? Well, okay, so she... She's Two, book, yeah, yeah, no, this, no, my understanding is that her original sample represents, uh, like she collected at the same time, these people who were ex-Mormons and the people who were, uh, actively participating, identifying as Mormons. So the next Mormons characterizes people who are currently say that they're Mormon, right? And so she hasn't written this book yet about the 500 people who are ex-Mormons. We don't really know, like, I don't, I don't know what she's well, going to no, say. in there. Yeah. She talked about Mormons and ex-Mormons. I, I can't remember what her new book's going to be about, but um, 
But yeah, because she, she had a thousand people yeah. who self-identified as uh -huh. Mormons, and then okay. she had 500 people who were Mormons, and there was a chapter or two in, in the book about the 500. Mm. Maybe it was peppering in or something, but I think her next book, she's planning to do a lot more analysis about that. So I haven't dug into that uh, enough to really say, but um, but my impression is that, uh, that like, because just having worked at church headquarters, we've done a lot of research about people who were formerly Mormons and who have left the church, the reasons why they leave, um, representative samples about the reasons why they leave and what's going on. And one of the things that Jana said in her interview with you was uh, uh, that, that I found really insightful and, in, and a critical takeaway was that most of the people in her survey and most of the people we know more generally uh, who leave the church are not leaving for faith crisis reasons. They're just but they are vocal. Yeah, so the faith crisis people appear to us to be like the the huge group of people who are leaving because they're so vocal about it, right? But most people actually leave, like she said in her interview, that the, the median age of leaving was 19, which is not at all surprising. Like most people are leaving any church, not just the Latter-day Saint church, any church they're leaving, like around the time when they're, you know, in their late teens and they're kind of grappling with this for the first time and deciding, I don't have a religious personality and this is not for me. Or right when they first leave home and they have to decide for the first Sunday of their life whether they're going to, you know, they're, they're attending a college and they live in a dorm and they have to wake up Sunday morning and decide, am I going to actually do this? Am I going to go to church? My parents always made me, but like, is it my thing? You know? And so you've got people kind of for the first time grappling with this question and you know, if you don't end up getting married right away in your early 20s and you're a Mormon, it feels like you're heretical or, you know, like you're not doing the right thing. You're not on the right path. You're a Democrat. So, yeah, exactly. So increasingly people are kind of feeling like, uh, like what the church represents is not aligned with my personal life, my experiences. And so they just kind of like, they, they just grow distant. They just fall away. And it's not like a faith crisis. It's not like they dug into the hard issues and they decided like, I don't believe this. Most people just drift. And we find that that's especially concentrated in that early, you know, that late teens, early 20s period. But it can happen to anybody. Most people who leave the church really do leave because they drift away. Like, for instance, you maybe you're traveling for business or you're going on vacation or something. You don't go to church for a couple of weeks while you're gone. You realize it's kind of nice to not go to church. You come home and you're like, yeah, honey, what, like, do you want to go, you know? So you go every other week instead of every week like you did before. And then eventually you're like every three weeks and then it's every month. And so you just kind of gradually part, right? This is the reason why the pandemic is so scary for the church, because by shutting down church meetings for a period of time, it, like people got in the habit of waking up Sunday morning and not having to get dressed and maybe wearing their pajamas to church or, you know, uh, it's like general conference on steroids, you know, so you just kind of, you know, you, you, it's nice to bake pancakes in the morning and just, you know, hang out with your family and have a more relaxed Sunday morning. And because it feels so good, you're like, well, do I, like, do I want to go to church as often as I was? And you just kind of, you just drift away. That's, and so as I, I, I think both local and global church leaders are looking at the pandemic right now as a potential catalyst for a lot of people just drifting away, not necessarily having faith crises, but just part parting ways with the church because it's easy. It's just easy to fall away. Hmm. Yeah. 
And we've already seen some anecdotal evidence. I mean, I, I, I suspect, I mean, I haven't been at the church for a little while now, but I suspect that, uh, that people there at headquarters are continuing to do research to kind of quantify how many people do we have fewer now than before, how many, how many people have left. But we kind of have some anecdotal evidence that's come from certain wards and stakes where it seems like maybe our in-person attendance is down maybe a third compared to what it used to be, you know? And we don't know if that's how, how to extrapolate that, but it seems like a lot of people might might either still be attending online or maybe not participating anymore. So it's a little scary. So, because, uh, you know, we're continuing. One of the things I love about President Nelson is the letting cameras in Sacramento meeting, which yeah, is, yeah. You know, that was completely... Yeah, really unexpected, before. yeah. So it's been nice. Do you see, do you see cameras going away? I mean, we're... We, yeah, exactly. We keep hearing like, you know, maybe this pandemic is kind of wavering out, but I, I've heard some epidemiologists say like, this isn't ever going to go away. We're all, for the rest of our lives, we're always going to have flare ups of COVID where we have new variants kind of with spikes. We'll probably be able to deal with it. You know, we're like, basically you just have to have a healthcare system that can kind of handle spikes in cases and hospitalizations, but you have to get back to real life, you know? Um, but this is going to be with us for a long time. So whenever we have these spikes going forward, we may kind of revert back to a more virtual temporary kind of thing, whether it's, you know, in the workplace or in church or whatever, you know, you might have these periods where people kind of lock down again. Um, and as that happens, uh, I think you have to have kind of an openness to continued videography of, of sacrament meetings and other, and other things. Because I had a conversation with Richie Stedman from the Culture Hall podcast one time, and he said he hopes that the cameras never go away because uh -huh. he has said, and I've not, I don't look and see who's online or uh, yeah. whatever um but he said he's noticed people who never went to church that are going now yep. because it's online yep. and you know there are a lot of elderly people i know yep. um in my ward my my ironic priesthood son used to go take sacrament to people who couldn't come to church yeah well now they can come and so yeah. that's an option so while i understand that physical attendance might be down mm -hmm. I, I wonder if they keep track of virtual attendance. Yeah, it's hard that's to probably know. Up. Yeah, it's it's hard to know because when you have a single person joining with their you know join you know a name on the screen in Zoom, you don't know if four people are at home watching or if one person at home, right? So you can't count heads the same way you could when they're in seat. So it's really hard to know what's going on, uh, and. Again, at church headquarters, may, they may be doing some kind of research to, you know, ask ward clerks to do like an in-depth follow-up in certain sampled wards to see like how many people are behind the names on Zoom, you know, how many people really are attending, and how under undercounting are our in-seat sacramenting numbers right now, for instance. Even I was in Boise a few months ago, and um, my nephew had a, a missionary farewell, uh -huh. and because it was online. Even yeah. though I was in Boise, I tuned in and watched. I don't know, you know, I, I would probably, if, if I was home, I probably would have gone in person. Uh -huh. um, but I wonder how many people, because I've heard some wards that actually shut off the virtual because they're like, you have to come to church. Yep, yep. And I know that's ticking off some yeah, people. So far, they've left it up to the, the, the kind of like the, 
So know, that's just a rogue stick president or whatever? Yeah, it's well, no, I mean, it's not even rogue. It's They've kind of left it up to each individual leader to decide for their stake in their ward whether they're going to do it. And m- many local leaders are kind of deciding we need to, you know, be as accommodating as we can, you know, for people who are elderly or, uh, or sick or, you know, a, just, you know, uh, immunocompromised or something. You know, we need to be as accommodating as we can. And there are other leaders who are kind of more hard-nosed who are deciding, you know, if we don't shut this off, then we're going to kind of Nobody's train up. Yeah, we're going to train up some people to, you know, expect it for the rest of their lives. And no, we can't do that. Um, and so it's like, it's at some point, I'm hoping that the church will kind of uh, kind of make a decision to allow it for everyone all the time, kind of encourage stakes and, and wards to, to maybe not leave that up to their, their own, you know, uh, their own decision making, maybe just kind of universalize it so everybody can. And so far, it appears like, again, this is anecdotal, but I've lived in a few wards since the pandemic. And as I look at, you know, who's joining online, often the numbers are kind of small. You know, they might have like seven people joining offline. And when I go to in-person church, often I've got most everybody. I'm I'm seeing like this is this is like a full ward. This is what we had before. So it seems like most people are back to attending church in person. Who are going to go back to attending church in person and if you shut it off you may be disenfranchising people who are not going to go back if you if you shut it off so allow them perhaps to participate in the only way they will you know um just as a you know just from my, my personal life my wife has a lot of health concerns and uh you know she already before the pandemic excuse me, before the pandemic, she wasn't able to attend church probably more than once or twice a month if she was lucky because she just has a lot of pain all the time. Uh, She's been attending church every single week virtually since the pandemic started and she feels so much better about it. It's been a huge blessing for her. She loves it. But her pain over the course of the pandemic, I mean, it's gotten worse for the last 14 years, but it's kind of gotten worse during the pandemic as well. And if we shut it off, I don't think she would be able to even tend once a month. I don't, I, like, she's got all kinds of issues. And I just, I think that she would be precluded from attending church almost always if we shut it off for her. So I'm hoping that bishops will recognize whether, whether the institutional church kind of tells them they need to, or whether, you know, they leave it up to individual bishops' decisions. I really hope that bishops will kind of recognize this is important for some members to have access in a, in a way they didn't before. Yeah, yeah. Well, cool. Well, um, so the other, I guess the, that kind of leads into the other question about, you know, I know it was Elder, um, oh, why can't I remember his name? But he talked about um, Jensen, Elder Jensen. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the former church historian, yeah. two church historians ago, so it's been a while. But he said that this was the biggest crisis in the LDS church since Kirtland, with the number of people that are just leaving mm-hmm. the church. Um, when I talked to you, you said it, it's not just the LDS church, it's every church is yeah. losing yeah. members. Yeah. Can you tell us, what, what do you think are the reasons behind that? Yeah, so there seem to be, well, let me just reference my notes here because there's a lot of things going on and I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to overlook some things. Um, okay, so there seem to be like, uh, there seems to be a generalized distrust in institutions today. Like, 
it's not just churches, though people feel kind of icky about churches. More, more and more people are kind of saying, like, I'm spiritual but not religious, right? I, like, I want to connect with God, but I don't want to do it through that institution because they, they have, like, rules and regulations that don't feel true to me or don't feel right to me. Um, or they seem, you know, judgmental in that church or they seem, uh, you know, hypocritical in that church or things like that. So people are viewing churches with more distrust, but that's not specific to churches. In an individualized society like we have, like with such rampant individualism, the United States of America is the most individualistic country in the world where we care mostly about ourselves, everybody else be damned, you know, like uh, just, you know, really like my unique personality, my needs, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not that concerned about other people, right? It's, it's like self-gratification off the charts, right? More than any other country in the world. When you have that, you look at everybody else with a kind of a sense of distrust. And you can kind of see this just generally bleeding into the culture of the United States, you know, where people are in perhaps more disagreement than they've been, things feel more divisive than they've ever been. Um, and, you know, uh, uh, so they look at the government with more distrust than they've than they have before. They look at banks with more distrust. They look at corporations with more distrust. So it's not really about religions, right? This is about just a generalized distrust in society and kind of a generalized selfishness about our culture, right? Where we kind of like, if um, uh, some some people have called this, um, uh, they they say like the religion of the United States today is. Uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, meaning moralistic, not actually moral, but having the illusion of morality, like doing things that appear good without actually being good. Like they don't have to be good just to look good, right? So you affiliate with something that sounds, you, you know, you, you, you do, you engage in behaviors and you, do, you affiliate with organizations that give the impression of being good, whether or not they're actually doing any real good in the world. Uh, therapeutic meaning like I have psychological needs and I'm seeking out God only to satisfy those needs for me. If, if like, if my relationship with God isn't meeting my needs, then I have no need for him. If he asks something of me, some sacrifice, oh, hell no. Cause like, that's not what I'm about. I'm about like getting from God something rather than giving to God something. Right. And deism, this idea, you know, of course, like God is there kind of not really demanding much of us. And, you know, he kind of set things in motion, but he expects us to just kind of figure out our own lives. So the, the Christianity of today is not the Christianity of the Bible. Uh, it appears to be just generally speaking, when you, you know, when you talk to people who identify as Christians, this kind of moralistic therapeutic deism where they're kind of seeking out God only for their own needs because it reflects the cultural mentality of individualism in the United States. Okay. So, uh, when we, you know, when we see that, you know, people are kind of leaving churches in droves, part of it is the broader culture. Part of it is just this worry that, you know, we've got, uh, uh, we've just got a lot of people who are not concerned about what Christianity is supposed to mean. They're more concerned about, you know, what they can get from it. And if it's not giving them something, then they're not going to continue to affiliate. So if churches want to retain a large populace, a large attendance, then they either have to find ways of correcting the, the broader culture, right? So that people stop feeling quite so selfish and so, uh, contractually, uh, 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 utilitarian toward God, um, or they have to um, they have to kind of cave and find ways of meeting people's expectations as they are, right? Um, and so you find that a lot of churches increasingly are are just kind of uh, they're just kind of caving. They're just kind of not asking that much of their congregants. They're just saying, you know, like 
it's whatever what you know whatever life you live it's good it's you know it's it's good enough and you know and we're we're here to meet your needs and we d- we're not going to ask anything of you you know um and uh those kinds of religions like <laughs> you um you can you can see that unfortunately like that seems like it should bring in more congregants but the more you relax standards the less likely people are to engage with religion so the sociology of religion suggests that um that religions that pull in a lot of adherents and they get them really committed and keep them long term are those that have comparatively higher standards so like the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints is uh it, ha- it has historically required a lot of its members, right? We, you know, we have this long list of things in order to get a temple recommend that you have to do and ways in which you participate. We have a lay ministry, and so everybody's kind of actively filling roles in the ward, and, um, you know, so you're you're paying 10% of your income, and you're, you know, you're um, uh, having to wear awkward underwear and, uh, and um, uh, keeping the word of wisdom, you know, abstaining from a lot of different things that are just colloquially accepted in your society, like coffee and tea. And um, so all these kinds of things kind of set you apart and require you to live in a, in a, uh, in a, what feels like a sanctified way, right? It feels like a better, holier, higher way. Um, but because it requires so much of you, it ends up kind of forcing you into an all or none kind of, kind of, categorization like you're either all in and you're really in or you're not and so uh you you have a lot of really hardcore uh adherents who are committed to the institution and churches that are more liberal that kind of just allow anything to go they lose congregants a lot more often so if the path that you choose as a church is to kind of cave to the whims of the people you know and kind of give them this moralistic therapeutic deism that they're seeking then Oftentimes you think you're you think you're going to up your adherence and you actually don't because what people like what causes people to affiliate is high standards not lower right um, another thing that we see going on today uh, compared to in the past is uh, well we kind of see that like the the dissociation of uh, of people from the church today and from all churches generally is part of kind of like a, a historic roller coaster of like waves of kind of affiliation and disaffiliation and affiliation and disaffiliation over and over so you see like in the mid 1700s you've got you know like the first great awakening people are um kind of feeling repulsed by the um like the enlightenment and kind of like the scientific uh method and you know this this theory of evolution and you know like these naturalistic explanations for things and preachers especially of christian denominations are saying like this is so ungodly we we can't like we can't do this we have to abandon these ways and you know they preach hellfire and damnation against it and uh and it kind of riles up people and kind of pulls them back into uh into faith denominations and you know kind of rejecting the science of the day uh and gradually that kind of wanes you know the you know the people um stop affiliating so strongly and you know the preachers stop preaching so harshly and you know the standards kind of drop a little and so people kind of disaffiliate with religion and then there's you know mid 1800s there's a second great awakening right and so people come back and we see you know people disaffiliate again in early 1900s mid 1900s you've got you know kind of like a third great awakening i don't think historians really call it that but like within the united states you've got this um like you've got a, 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 a like a 
a growing importance of Christianity in the nation generally, right? You're coming out of World War II, you're kind of trying to distance yourselves from the uh, from the communist countries of the East, Russia and China. And, and godless communists. Yeah, exactly. And so you're trying to, you know, you're, you. so how do you do that? You identify yourself even harder as a Christian nation, right? And so you've got President Eisenhower becoming baptized while he's in office to identify him himself and the nation as a Christian nation, right? And people start participating again in droves, in churches. Changing the Pledge of Allegiance. Yes, yes, God. one nation under God. You add that in. in God we trust yes, as all that stuff gets added to identify us as a Christian nation. And this is like a third great awakening, right? Where we kind of reaffiliate, And then you see a falling away again, where people kind of just like drift away from, you know, from religions generally. It's not just our church. Every church kind of people drift away. Um, Would you say that goes from World War II to about the 90s? Is that kind of uh, a third great awakening? It's hard to give like like it didn't really last that long i don't think i would say it probably lasted like f from like the 50s to the 60s you know like oh, really? by the 70s you've already got you know the the kind of the hippie countercultural movement and you know the growth of science and the the, well, then you the, have the 80s the, with the moral majority Yes, yes, it's all messy, right? You've got this constant tension of back and forth between like the religionists and the scientists, right? And you've got like, you know, just got this 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 constant tension. And so it's always hard when you're living in a contemporary time to see how much of what's going on is a broad trend or how much of it is like, you know, just like, you know, a, a little tension, you know, that's that's just just a, a chronic back and forth, you know, is this a, is this a, is this something that's going to be identified as a movement later? Or is this just like a, 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 a just, you know, some, something that's smaller. Um, so as I look at, like, as I look at going forward into the mid 2000s, I think, you know, what's like, there's no reason to suspect that there won't be some kind of advent that, that, you know, brings people back to religion in the same kind of fourth great awakening that we've already seen every hundred years for the you know since the founding of our country um and already you can kind of see signs of this a little bit as you um like as you for instance you look at uh uh like you look at the the anti-science movement among many people in uh in the country today this distrust in institutions it it's manifesting as a distrust of religion, but it's also a distrust of, of science. It's a distrust of, you know, no, of enlightenment. Exactly. And so like, uh, you know, you know, you've, you've got, um, you know, you've got a lot of people who are, you know, just kind of into like, you know, my parents, for instance, like, you know, believe in wearing magnets, uh, as a, as a healing thing. You know, you've got people who are like crystal wearing doTERRA users, you know, and things like that. You look at the science, like the actual science of these things and almost never does it pan out. It's usually because of placebo effect that these things have some kind of propitious benefit, right? Um, but you know, you can't convince most people of that because, you know, their intuition, just suggests, you know, this, this seems to be working and I'm going to use it. And actually, to be honest, like, you know, as long as the placebo effect is working, maybe you should just let them, you know? Like. Well, you know, that's funny you bring that up. Do you listen to Freakonomics? Uh, sometimes, yeah. Because they have a, a wonderful set of podcasts on the, on the placebo effect uh -huh, and yeah. how sometimes it can be useful and just yeah, use it yeah. if it works. Oh, I mean, just, I know this is a tangent, but, um, but there's, there's some research that suggests even if you know that a drug is a placebo it will still have beneficial side effects right. so you can for instance you can like design your own placebo drug like you meet with a therapist and they'll say like if you could take it 
if you could take a pill to solve this, what would it look like? How big would it be? How many would you take? What color would it be? And then you send the prescription off to a pharmacy. You have them fill it. They charge you money for a placebo drug that looks to your specifications. You know it's placebo. You take it and feel better. Like, that kind of thing is so, like, it shouldn't exist. Like, it should not be. But human brains are just bizarre, just so unexplicable. Well, and inexplicable. I've even heard, uh, and this might offend some people, but... Um They've done some studies where uh, if I tell you you're sick, I tell you that I'm praying for you, uh -huh. but and then another person in another room is sick with the same disease, uh -huh. but I don't. I pray for yeah. them, but I don't yeah. tell them. Yeah. But, I, but because yeah. I told you, the placebo effect is actually yes. what heals you. Yeah, these are studies. These are called intercessory prayer studies. Yeah, yeah. so you're you're trying to intercede on somebody's behalf, and. Uh, if you look at broad, uh, like some individual studies have found that even if you pray for somebody and they don't know that they're that you're praying for them, uh, that they still get better compared to people who aren't being prayed for. But if you do a meta-analysis of a bunch of these kinds of studies, those effects generally wash out. So mostly you can, like, it doesn't appear that there's any propitious benefit of praying for a stranger, for instance, uh, if they don't know that they're being prayed for. But if they know they're being prayed for, then they actually get a lot better than if they don't know that somebody's praying for them. So how much of that is coming from the placebo effect? How much of it is coming from just like the community support and knowledge that like somebody cares for me and loves me? We don't know, but we do know like for instance, in another study, um, researchers paid somebody like, they, they paid a panel of people like $800 a piece to sniff a vial of cold virus. And then saw, they tracked whether they got sick or not, and tracked it back to whether they had a strong social support network or didn't. And people who had a strong social support network and kind of lowers the levels of stress in their life didn't get sick from sniffing in the cold virus. Their immune system was stronger and was able to fight it off before it caught hold, right? Whereas people who don't have that same kind of social support network and the same kind of friend connections, they got sick. So... We don't know how much of it is the placebo effect from being prayed for and how much is like a social effect, just knowing that somebody cares about me. But it's possible that the same kind of thing is going on with these pills. Like if you have like two, you take two purple capsules a day, like we don't know how much of that is from the pills and how much is from meeting with a therapist who is giving you concern and talking about your problems and imagining this, you know, this, this, you know, solution to a problem with you. We never can tell like how much is placebo and how much is just like the interpersonal interaction. See, there's a great freakonomic episode i'm going to convert you all to freakonomics it's great <laughs> but uh they talk about the, you, you've heard the phrase being mesmerized yes but yes. there was a guy his last name was mesmer, mesmer and he uh -huh. also he dressed up like a wizard and i'm going to heal you and whatever <laughs> and it worked half the time and it was all placebo effect that's, yeah, that's what yeah. that's what being mesmerized yeah. is is the placebo this effect. is yeah this is uh this is actually the precursor to modern hypnosis right and uh and hypnosis is uh an almost inexplicable, inexplicable phenomenon. Like even people who are expert in hypnosis don't really get what's going on. Like, no, like nobody knows why this happens. There's some theories that suggest maybe it's better connecting your conscious brain with your unconscious brain. Maybe it's dissociating your conscious brain from your unconscious brain. Or they say maybe it's like um, heightening your attention to certain facets of the environment and, and distracting you from other aspects of the environment. Like, nobody knows exactly what's going on here, right? But one thing seems to be for certain. Uh, 
some people are more hypnotizable than others, and the kind of people who are more hypnotizable have more active imaginations, and they're more um, like compliant individuals, so they're more like willing to go along with things. Um, uh, so, uh, like, we don't know, going back to what you're saying about mesmer, we don't know how much of the effect of, you know, mesmerism or hypnotism uh, in treating pain, for instance, is because of the placebo effect, how much of it is just, like, social compliance, and how much of it is just, like, freeing your subconscious mind to kind of play out better in your in your life, you know? So often, like, our conscious mind kind of gets in the way of our unconscious mind from, you know, doing what it does really well. Um, you know, there's a, Shannon Flynn tells a story about Mark Hoffman, uh -huh. that Mark was so good at self-hypnotizing himself, uh -huh. that he actually, when he was in prison, I believe, had a root canal with no anesthesia. Yeah, Because yeah. he could control his pain that much. Yeah, dental, uh, d well, it's surprising that he could self-hypnotize. A lot of people undergo external hypnosis by a therapist uh, and dental procedures are actually the most common uh, most commonly studied phenomenon with hypnosis for pain for pain control um, other kinds of surgeries have been explored but um, but dental procedures are like it's very common to use hypnosis to kind of get through a, um, get through a dental procedure um, uh, it's it's rare that people can self-hypnotize. Uh, most people who, like, if you go through, even even these, like, online uh, classes that, like, go walk you through, like, a hypnosis induction are usually walking through something that's more like a mindfulness induction rather than a hypnosis induction. And so, like, like most, like, most of the time, people who think they've been hypnotized probably haven't been, um... If you've engaged in like stage hypnosis, it's probably not real hypnosis. Uh, um, uh, I mean, if you've met with like a, a therapist, like a psychologist who's done it, then probably you have. But like if you've done it like with some kind of online service or something, it's probably more of a mindfulness thing than a hypnosis thing. Yeah. It's, it's just a bizarre phenomenon. But I, I'm glad that we were talking about hypnosis because I actually wanted to kind of shift gears and talk a little bit about um, uh, the like the kind of what's going on in the subconscious brain that gives rise to these some of the spiritual experiences that we experience in our yeah, life. Cool. And uh, uh, and hypnosis kind of like our understanding of hypnosis as poor as it is kind of helps us as an analogy for understanding some of the spiritual experiences that we have. So. Like the the like when somebody's experiencing hypnosis, like an induction might uh, have them focus their attention on something in particular. Um, you know, uh, somebody who's easily hypnotizable can just like focus on a thumbnail or something of the uh, of themselves or of the hypnotherapist. And as you focus on the thumbnail, like you go deeper and deeper. You might use like a like a, a a number system where you count backwards from five and every step as you go lower in the numbers um, you get deeper in this state of hypnosis and then you know you then you're then you find yourself there in this hypnotized trance and in order to test the induction a, a therapist might say like um, you're going to feel like your right hand is floating higher and higher in the air and as you do this you know you you you, you know you feel like your hand is floating and uh, and if, what's fascinating here is like your hand is, it's being held here, right? But it feels to you like it's floating autonomously. It's not happening because you controlled your hand to be, I mean, I, I'm lifting my hand right now, right? But the muscle movements that are required in order for me to lift my hand 
could be interpreted by my brain as either originating from myself or as originating external to myself, okay? And if my brain misinterprets the cause of the raising as something external, then it feels like it's floating or being raised by somebody else rather than my doing the, the muscle lifting. We know that people in hypnosis are actually lifting their own hand, but they self-report that it feels like it's something external to them. Okay? Now, this is critical for understanding because a lot of, especially early spiritualism, like in the 1800s, interacting psychics, mediums, table turning, things like that, involved some degree, even like Ouija boards and, uh, and like dowsing for water and things like that, involved this kind of muscular movement. Okay? It involved some degree of moving your hands, moving your muscles, and then attributing the muscle movement to something other than yourself. Okay, to some spirit in the in the environment, or you know, to some otherworldly force, or something like that. Okay, so um, uh, so I'll just like we'll, we'll just talk for a second about dowsing. Okay, dowsing is um, uh, you know, this practice where you have two sticks in your hand independently. You kind of hold them out parallel, and as you walk around a field or a room or something like that, then eventually the rods will kind of cross. Like they will make an X shape as the you know as as the two rods kind of you know just just cross uh, you know on top of each other. At that point, you know there has to be water. Like that's a good source of water in that in that place. This movement will happen accidentally and naturally if you hold out your hands for a long time your muscles just kind of start to fatigue and you lose control and the cro the rods are guaranteed to cross at some point while you're dowsing like they will absolutely cross but where they cross is uncertain okay if if though you have already demonstrated dowsing to like other observers and they're unfamiliar with the process, they've never doused before, and then you hand them the sticks and you tell them to wander the field, and you've already showed them where water is, they will cross their rods over the same place that you did, even though they feel like they didn't control it. It just happened, okay? It just happened. It feels external to them, even though it, like, it happened at the exact same spot where they saw somebody else cross their rods, okay? If, on the other hand, if you don't demonstrate the procedure first, and you just let people kind of douse, each person will cross their rods at a different place in the field, or a different place in the room, okay? So this suggests that, and, and it feels the same either way to the participant. They will, if they've never doused before, they'll cross their rods and they'll be like, oh my goodness, look, it just happened. Like, I can't believe, there's water here, right? And, uh, and... It feels the same if you are crossing the rods at the same spot as somebody else demonstrated or a different spot. It feels the same intrinsic to you, right? It feels like some force crossed the rods. But you actually psychologically forced the rods to cross where somebody else demonstrated previously if you saw it happen there, okay? So this, this suggests that, like, there's some part of you that's making the rods cross that you don't have conscious access to. This is not surprising if you understand about the brain at all, because we've got kind of like layers of brain. So like, like the brain is like about the size of two fists like this. And if you look at the cortex of the brain, that's like the, the outermost layer that, that's kind of surrounding the, the external brain. So the cortex of the brain is the conscious area of the brain. We do our thinking here in the front. We do our, our seeing, our visual processing here in the back. We do our auditory listening here. We do spatial kind of reasoning and movements with this part at the top. Um, and all of that is conscious. But beneath that thin layer of about, you know, uh, like, you know, six millimeters or something on the outside of the brain, everything else that's deeper inside is unconscious. 
Everything else that's part of our brain matter, most of our brain, is outside of our conscious awareness. So this is all where we process our emotions, negative and positive emotions, rewards and punishments. This is where we uh, process most of our digestion, our breathing and respiration, our um, uh, our, our circulation, our uh, any kind of uh, any kind of motor movements that we've already learned how to do in the past. Like if like we already know how to walk. So like, you don't have to think about walking. You don't have to think like, oh, okay, every step I have to pick up my foot, move it forward, put it down. Like you don't have to think about stuff. It's automatic. All the automatic things we do occur in that unconscious part of the brain. So we know that a bunch of stuff is going on that we don't really, we're not aware of. We're not, we don't have conscious access of. We can't control it if we wanted to. Some things we can control if we wanted to, but some things we really even can't control it if we wanted to. Um, Breathing. Breathing. We can control if we want to. Sometimes we, you know, we can't. You, if you practice really hard and you have a good trainer and they use biofeedback therapy, you can learn to control your heart rate and your blood pressure too, but it takes a lot more work and you kind of have to have like, you have to be hooked up to sensors to see what's going on inside your body while you're, um, uh, like, like, you know, while you're thinking certain thoughts or while you're breathing in certain ways, you can learn to control your heartbeat too, your blood pressure and things like that. Um, uh, but m for most people, we don't have conscious control over these kinds of things. Well, there's there's about 10 regions in your brain that decide the muscle movements of your body. Uh, there's the, cerebr the, the cerebellum, there's the uh, basal ganglia, there's the motor cortex in your cerebral cortex. There's all kinds of areas that are kind of peripherally involved in the movements that you make. Only one region is involved in conscious intentional movements. All the other ones are part of that unconscious brain. So if the rods cross and part of your body, an unconscious part of your body is trying to give manifestation to the dowsing that you already saw somebody else do, you might not be aware of the fact that that unconscious part of your brain is driving your actions. It feels external to you. It feels like the gods crossed the rods when really your brain crossed the rods, but some part of your brain you aren't aware of, right? So, but we see the same kind of thing happen with like Ouija boards when people are, you know, kind of like moving, you know, moving the, what's the planchet? When people are moving the planchet across the board, like their own muscle twitches, their own movements. This is called idiomotor movement. Uh, it's this kind of motor movement that is outside of your conscious awareness. You're actually controlling it, but you're not aware of your intentionality. Okay. So you're spelling out things that you aren't even aware you're spelling out. It's your unconscious brain giving manifestation through your hands. Uh, we find the same thing happening with a lot of uh, a lot of mediums who did table turning back in the 18, 1800s and um, uh, even contemporary. We've got a lot of cases of these people who are have severe cases of autism or other um, physical disabilities that kind of prevent them from communicating with the outside world and so they can use like little tablets and point to pictures on the tablets and spell out sentences, okay? This is a, a, this is, I think this is called like a communication board or something like that. And uh, when people spell out these sentences with pictures on the board, um, uh, they can communicate even if they're not verbal. They can still like tell people their needs and wants. Some people are so disabled that they can't even use a communication board. They can't physically control their fingers to tap out what they wanna say. But there are folks who think of themselves as facilitators, who hold the hands of somebody who is disabled and kind of control their, well, they, they don't think of it as controlling, they think of it as supporting, physically supporting the finger so that they can tap on the board. And the facilitator ends up 
accidentally, unintentionally, and unconsciously manipulating the finger to spell out things that they themselves, the facilitator, wants to be spelled out. Okay? So the person who's disabled isn't actually doing the spelling in these cases. We've had case, uh, like, like legal cases where people have, like these disabled individuals have made uh, accusations of s horrific sexual abuse against their parents and things like that uh, through the use of a facilitator um, who's communicating these kinds of things and, uh, and, uh, and they, they turn out to be false, right? They're, they're, they're not true stories. And the way that you know this is because if, the, if you use a different facilitator who's also trained but doesn't, isn't aware of the situation and you ask, the, you ask the disabled person to tell the same story, it doesn't come out the same way, right? So this ends up being evidence that the person who's doing the facilitation is actually doing the communication, right? But if you ask them, they're not, they're not bad people. They're not trying to cause havoc for the lives of these disabled folks and their parents. They literally do not know that they're controlling the movements of this kid's hands, right? So, um, uh, so these kinds of things manifest themselves in all kinds of fascinating ways and seem to be the, the, underpinning this idiomotor phenomenon seems to be the underpinning of things like uh, free writing, spiritual, like spiritual writing, channeling, uh, like um, when you give revelations or speech that you feel are channeling other people. Um, you aren't aware that what you're writing is actually coming from your brain, that what you're saying is not coming from, is actually coming from your brain. It feels like it's coming from some external spiritual source. But some people engage in this, you know, in this practice of writing or speaking on behalf of the dead, and, uh, and evidence suggests that it's not actually uh, uh, co coming from the dead, it's actually coming from their unconscious brain. But this allows for people to accidentally fool themselves into thinking that they're a spiritual channel for the dead. They're not charlatans, they're not trying to trick people. They just accidentally don't know that their brain, their unconscious brain is kind of, you know, playing this out for them. So it seems like you're kind of describing psychics who solve murders. Yeah, so this, yeah, this can happen sometimes with uh, psychics and mediums today, um, but, you know, one of the, one of the immediate and uh, obvious applications is some people have suggested that an explanation for the Book of Mormon is something along these lines, that as Joseph is kind of dictating this revelation, that it's coming perhaps from his unconscious brain, and he doesn't know that, right? That it's, that he's kind of pulling together stuff that he might have read from maybe a Spalding manuscript or maybe some stuff that he's read from other, you know, other... Jonathan Edwards, Adam Clark, Thank you. Uh -huh. um, I'm trying to remember who the other ones are. Yeah, things like this, right? If he's, if he's gathered up thoughts through reading a lot of books through the years, then, you know, it's possible he's kind of amalgamating them in his subconscious and it's coming out in the form of what he feels is really a revelation and may actually be from his subconscious brain. So, I mean... I'm not like I'm not advocating that that is my opinion. That's my explanation for it. But but some people will explain what happened there in yeah. psychological terms like that. I think they call that automatic writing. Yeah, Brian yeah, yeah. And it can happen. Uh, yeah, it can. So it can happen like using your hand in an idiomotor fashion, or it can happen when you're just talking and somebody else is writing down what you're saying, right? But either way, uh, whether you're free writing or you know doing this automatic writing or whether you're speaking, either way, something is going on in your subconscious to make you feel as if it's not coming from you, even though it really is. And honestly, if you start, like, if you start down this road and you start stepping back and thinking about the spiritual experiences that you and I have experienced in our lives, some of the things that we've experienced might feel that same way. Like, we don't know, is this my thought or is this external to me? Is this like, 
is this a revelation or is this just like, you know, OCD? Like, what, what is this I'm feeling? You know, and so sometimes people can, uh, can kind of attribute a spiritual experience to maybe their own thoughts or maybe they attribute a spiritual experience to, um, you know, to some divine being, you know, being there present with them, you know, they might even feel like a spiritual entity is present in the room with them or something like that. And, uh, and you know, one scientific explanation of this is that it's actually just your subconscious, right? Um, yeah, and it's, it's, so, uh, so sometimes people will look for, um, uh, like a different kind of spiritual experience that um, I'm just going to reference my notes really quick here. Uh, so, so spiritual experiences can um, kind of be divided into two major categories. There's like ordinary experiences and extraordinary experiences. And, uh, Ordinary experiences are those that, like, almost all of us have guaranteed to have experienced at some point. These are things like prayer and meditation, reading sacred texts, maybe feeling like some moderate calm or peace or something like that, right? Um, those are the kinds of things that we kind of intuitively know, like, they're simple enough and undramatic enough that they could potentially be faked. They could, we could be fooling ourselves if we engage in these things and we feel like just a simple feeling of peace. So when we're looking for confirmation of a testimony, like when people pray at the beginning of their mission to figure out, like, is this really something I believe? You know, am I really going to spend the next two years of my life doing this? They're looking for something bigger, something extraordinary, not something ordinary, right? And so they start to look for things that are more mystical, supernatural, metaphysical, charismatic. And through, like, like as we talk about these spiritual experiences, it's important, like I'm going to define the word charismatic because it's different than kind of colloquially we talk about charisma as like a really likable personality. And that's not scripturally how the word is used. Like in the New Testament, uh, the word charisma is not used in English, but it stems like, like at least I don't think it is in the New Testament, but, um, but the, the word charisma as it's used in the Christian uh, faith tradition kind of stems from a, a translation of two different kinds of words. There's, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and both are translated as gifts in the New Testament, but there's two root words that are both translated the same, even though they're actually different. One is like a kind of charismatic gift and one is like a more ordinary gift. So if people happen to be like good leaders or good teachers, good speakers, like those are ordinary things that you might just happen to have because of your biology, your personality, their natural gifts. And Paul talks about these things as important to the church. But Paul also talks about charismatic gifts that are only of divine origin. They cannot be just like you can't just trip and fall into them because of biology. These are things like speaking in tongues and having visions, revelations, manifestations, um, uh, prophecies. These seem to be like more miraculous, more of a supernatural nature. They're not like, they're not just personality traits, right? They're like, they seem to be God given. Uh, and so if you like, um, at the, at the very beginning of, uh, the field of psychology in America, William James, early 1800s, um, any relation? No, unfortunately not. Yeah, as far as I can tell, I have no relation to William James, nor to Jesse James, unfortunately. So, <laughs> I know. It's like, with, with such a name, I mean, why couldn't I have, you know, had some, some claim to fame or something, you know? Uh, uh, so, William James um, uh, was just kind of like... Um, 
uh, he, what he's mostly known for is like his work in functionalism and structuralism, which is so funny because it's such a small and unimportant part of what he did. Um, but what he really was passionate about and what he spent most of his time doing, especially his free time, was investigating spiritual phenomena. He was looking for proof of the afterlife. He really wanted to, like he saw all these spiritual, spiritualists and mediums and stuff, and he wanted to see like... He wanted to debunk as many of them as were not real, but he also hoped, really desperately, that some of them would be real. And so he was hoping that by putting them through a battery of tests and just really subjecting them to a lot of scrutiny, that eventually he could demonstrate that some of them were legit. And, uh, and like, as he, um, uh, like, he wrote, um, he wrote a book, uh, uh, oh, shoot, I wish I could remember the title. It's um, something about spiritual experiences. Um, anyway, somebody will look it up. But um, anyway, uh, so he wrote this book, and he kind of talked about uh, some of the some of the conclusions that he was drawing about the nature of religion and spirituality. And he said that these uh, these um, uh, extraordinary experiences have four main criteria that uh, that that kind of define them as unique and separate from these ordinary spiritual experiences, right? Kind of unfakeable aspects, right? And so he called them things, like he said, that they have ineffability. In other words, you can't put words to them. They're really difficult to describe. Uh, we've all experienced this kind of ineffability in our, um, like in our own spiritual experiences. And you hear about them in general conference all the time where people are like, I knew in a way I cannot describe, right? That, that sense that we all sometimes get where you know, and you don't know why you know, and you don't know how you know, but it's this ineffable experience that you can't put words to, but you know in a way that transcends language, okay? And people can experience this outside of the Mormon tradition as well. They, they kind of have a knowledge come upon them. They also experience this noesis. This is, this is another facet of what I was just describing, this bestowing of knowledge. It feels like some insight came upon you that you didn't have before, and now something is clearer, or something is, you have better perspective than you used to have, and it feels, again, like it's external to you. Uh, he said that these are transient. In other words, you can't maintain them over the long term. They happen at unexpected moments, they happen for a short period of time, and then they go away. Uh, and then also they, see, they seem passive. They seem like something you're not controlling, you didn't do. They happen to you, right? So these traits William James identifies seem to kind of characterize this, this unique experience of extraordinary spiritual experiences that many people of many faith traditions have, have had. Um, more recent research has kind of suggested that these um, uh, that these spiritual experiences have a neurobiological basis. As it relates to the Mormon tradition, there's a there's a um, professor at the University of Utah, Jeff Anderson. In 2016, he did this MRI study where he stuck people in the MRI machine to scan their brains and had them watch like one of the first vision movies that the that the church has produced. And while people were watching this scene of you know the God the Father and Joseph Smith appearing, and there's this beautiful music in the background, and it's just this this crescendo of of moments. You know, it's just like this this you know this beautiful uh, this beautiful moment of cinematic drama, uh, people in the MRI machine are sitting there sobbing, having spiritual experiences while their brains are being scanned. And uh, Jeff Anderson is identifying that like various parts of their brain are active, mostly the reward centers, like the nucleus accumbens, are active when these people are experiencing this very rewarding spiritual experience. And we also know that there's like, there's, there's, um, 
ictal religiosity, ictal meaning um, medically based religiosity that happens in people with certain kinds of uh, epilepsy. So epilepsy is like a condition where, you know, you have seizures pretty often. But some people, when they have this ictal religiosity, they have seizures that provoke upon them a feeling of, or provoke within them, a feeling of religion. A feeling of like religiosity, a feeling of deep spirituality. They often feel like they've heard external voices. Um, uh, they they might experience like visions or auditory hallucinations and things like that. And they are, I mean, like we can identify the brain regions that appear to be uh, giving rise to these uh, the, to these uh, phenomenological experiences, but. Uh, when you talk to the people who have experienced them, they're convinced that they're real. Like, this is not a brain thing. This is something that I actually experienced. It was definitely external to me, right? So, so these people were having a seizure that, that other people notice, and they experienced a vision. Yes, instead. during the course of the seizure or shortly after the seizure, they'll experience a vision. Um, and uh, a vision or an auditory, um, an auditory vision, uh, you know, a voice of God or something like that. I've heard Ezekiel is somebody they think might have had this. Uh -huh, yeah, so many of the, it's funny because lots of the, lots of the Old Testament prophets have kind of bizarre characteristics, they, bizarre behavior that some psychologists, some clinical psychologists have kind of looked at them and said, this manifests almost like schizophrenia. Like, um, like not all the, not all the symptoms of schizophrenia, but like some of the symptoms of schizophrenia enough where like the, I've read a paper where they actually tracked like which symptoms, which prophets had and suggested like many of the people in the old Testament who are religious leaders may have had some kind of ictal religiosity, some kind of brain-based something going on because it wasn't just spirituality it was also in addition to that other bizarre behaviors and practices and kind of like I'm trying to remember was it isaiah who walked through the city naked <laughs> i don't even remember that that's there hilarious. was a prophet i can't yeah. remember but i think yeah. it was isaiah you've got um paranoia you've got um you know uh, uh you've got you know people um kind of just engaging in in odd yeah you know, just odd behaviors and stuff of course you know auditory and um and visual hallucinations or spiritual manifestations right we don't know but um but some scientists have kind of reinterpreted the data to say like a lot of this might have been you know some kind of brain based something yeah so we know that this these experiences that william james kind of kind of describes as uh, extraordinary spiritual experiences, and he gives these qualifiers too. We we have recent research that suggests they really are like centered in the brain. But going back to this idea of the placebo effect and of hypnosis, we pull these in and we start to kind of characterize the differences that we see across denominations, right? So if you look at Pentecostals, they are far more likely to engage in speaking in tongues than people of other faith denominations. And Bickertonites. Yeah, and Bickertonites too, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and you've got, um, let's see, you, you know, you've got um, like people in the, um, uh, like Appalachian Pentecostals, uh, who live, you know, in the, the Tennessee, Kentucky region, who are engaging in sign seeking, so they're going to have spiritual experiences while handling snakes or drinking poisons and things oh. like that, right? Um, but you really only see it mostly in that region of the country. Um, uh, aren't, aren't they Pentecostal as well? Yeah, yeah, they're kind of Appalachian Pentecostals. Yeah, yeah uh huh. Um, you you're going to see um, that uh, like Catholics are going to have a lot more apparitions, right. right? They're they're far more likely to see visions, um, and to see and to and to interpret other like. There's this uh, phenomenon called. Um, 
uh, pareidolia. Uh, pareidolia is where you perceive faces in randomness, in random noises, right? So we've all experienced this where, you know, you, you're looking down at the tile while you're sitting on the toilet and like the, you know, the patterns on the tile look like faces or you look at your curtains and, you know, the patterns in the curtain look like faces, right? We all experience this. You look at a cloud, you know, all, all kinds of things. This, this phenomenon seems to be embedded in the brain in the, in what's called the fusiform facial gyrus, where we have like a particular area that is attuned from the very first moments of life, like day one of birth, to pick up on things that look more like faces compared to things that look less like faces. So if you have like two dots and a line underneath them that kind of reflect like the basic outline of a face, then infants will stare at that for a lot longer than like a line and two dots where the line is side, you know, on the side of the two dots, right? And so this suggests that like infants are caring about things that look like faces and not like things that don't. And we and that carries forward through our whole lives. It's just inborn in us to care about face-looking things. Well, Catholics are a lot more likely to see divine apparitions in random objects. Like, you know, we, we hear the story about like uh, the, the piece of toast that looked like the Virgin Mary, right? That that would only happen to a Catholic because Catholics, like they, they're, they're more likely to experience, I mean, everybody experiences this phenomenon of pareidolia, but Catholics are more likely to see that as a spiritual phenomenon, right? To, to see that as not just a face, but the Virgin Mary's face, and it's, you know, and it's, and it's a divine manifestation, because that's an expected part of their religion, right? It's the kind of thing that is approved, sanctioned by their church, right? And so you start to see that the kinds of spiritual experiences people have are almost always the kinds of spiritual experiences that are sanctioned, that are authorized within their faith denomination, right? And so what does this mean? Like, you can, you can kind of start to conclude that uh, well, another fun example is like during the Second Great Awakening, people would um, experience all kinds of bizarre behaviors when they were come upon by the spirit. They would like bark like a dog or shake or faint, fall down, um, yell out. Yes, yes, right? Um, this is like, it's so funny because like Pentecostals kind of revived this in the 1900s, but like Methodists were doing this a long, like a hundred years before, you know? Um, so, you know, even Joseph Smith is experiencing some of these things in his early church. You know, pe- the spirit comes upon people and they bark like a dog or they jump around the room like a monkey or something, you know, and he has to find ways of like rooting that out. And the only way you can do that is saying like, that's of the devil and this is of God. And these are saying, these are not sanctioned and these are sanctioned, right? These are, these are good kinds of spiritual experiences. These are not. Um, And so you end up with, you know, a book of Mormon that says we should experience visions and manifestations and, uh, and, um, you know, speaking in tongues and all kinds of, you know, metaphysical and extraordinary gifts of the spirit, right? Um, But then you've also got Joseph himself trying to root out some of these very things from the church because they're disruptive and bizarre, you know? And so, um, uh, what ends up what like what ends up from one denomination to the next being manifested is just always that thing that's allowed in the church what your leaders tell you you should be experiencing so you experience the spirit how you expect to experience the spirit okay what is this like this is just like the hypnosis analog right where your hand floats because somebody tells you it should be floating and it feels like it's external to you but it's actually you it's actually your subconscious um this is just like uh this is just like um, 
the placebo effect, where you know you get better because you expect to, or the opposite of the placebo effect, called the nocebo effect, where people are getting worse because of the side effects of the drug that's not actually a drug. They take a placebo and they have like stomach pains and headache because they're expecting side effects from a drug that's not even a drug, right? So you can experience all kinds of things you expect to experience, experience both good and bad, and all of us kind of have things that we that we experience, we have impulses and drives, some of which we push down and some of which we give manifestation or light to. So as like a personal thing for my life, sometimes when I've had a really rough day, I like get in my car, I usually walk to work, but like if I drive to work, I might get in the car and just yell out like a guttural scream, just like, ah! And I just, you know, it's just like something that I would never ever do at any other time or place in my life. The only place I feel comfortable doing that is in my in, in my car, in the privacy of my car. I would never do it in my office. I would never do it once I'm here at home. I would, but it feels nice to have a place where sometimes I can just guttural scream because it's just a rough day, you know. Um, and uh, that's the kind of thing where I like I don't always have that impulse, but sometimes I have that impulse. Most of the time, I push that impulse down. And every once in a while, if the opportunity is right, then I let it go, right? So if you look across faith denominations, everybody might have a little bit of an impulse to say, hallelujah, amen, brother. But if you're not allowed to within your faith denomination, you you push that down and you sit in chapel, you know, you sit, you sit in your chapel and you reverently say amen. And that's all you're allowed to do, even though you might have an impulse to want to say hallelujah. You know, and people in other faith denominations are allowed to do that. So they do, and they feel like the Spirit compelled them to do that. Well, the Spirit might be compelling us too to kind of say amen, brother, hallelujah, right? But we don't feel in, uh, like allowed or permissed to do that, right? So we kind of push it down. We're not Pentecostals. Yeah, yeah. But the same kinds of thing might be happening with even more extraordinary experiences. Like maybe, like maybe some of us from time to time have an impulse that feels like we want to speak in tongues. I, don't, I can't identify a time in my life where I felt that, but if it came upon me, I wouldn't be aware of it because I would push it down faster than you can believe, right? Because it's not allowed in this faith tradition. But if it were to ever come about and I was Pentecostal, then I would give voice to it, you know? So these kinds of things happen where they're allowed to happen, right? In the same way that the placebo effect kind of gives manifestation to subconscious things, you know, like your own expectations. If you expect it and it's allowed, then it'll happen, right? So a lot of our spiritual experiences can be understood in that kind of way. You know, whatever whatever kinds of manifestations you have as a Latter-day Saint, you're going to have, like, within the bounds of what you've heard in general conference dictated, what you're allowed to have. And if people have spiritual manifestations that feel like they're outside that norm, it's going to be hard to reconcile. Like, how do I... excommunicate it, like, down yes, yes. people like that. Yeah, so sometimes people are, like, allowing themselves. They're, they're, they're choosing to be led first by God and second by the brethren, and sometimes there are consequences of that, you know? Like, if you feel like God's really leading you to something, and you give voice to that, you give manifestation to that, it's, like, there can be consequences sometimes. So, I worry sometimes, as Latter-day Saints, that we work too hard to put God in a box. Like, we say, God can only function in our lives in these ways. Who's to say, you know, who's to say how God can manifest? I mean, Joseph believed in magic, and he believed in, you know, all kinds of bizarre things that we might not, you know, we might not practice today. Well, we used to speak in tongues, it used yeah. to be okay to do. yeah. So there's all kinds of things, I think, that, that occurred in the early church that if they were to occur today, we would frown on them. Like, even if, you, even if you had a vision of an angel or you saw Jesus and you tried to talk about it publicly, 
even if you were the prophet, you know, the prophets might even be having these kinds of manifestations and they don't feel comfortable talking about it. But why? You know, all the historical prophets always said, you know, like, I know that God lives for I have seen him, you know, like, like they would tell about their, their visionary experiences and their firsthand witnesses. So I don't, I don't see why we have to be so stringent about what God can and can't do and how he can and can't speak to his people. I hope you enjoyed part one of our conversation with Dr. Jesse James. In part two, we're going to talk about some of the different denominations and uh, how they came about, how and why they came about. So as you see these, these people break off, we, I, I have been calling them conservatives. They are evangelical. Evangelical is a word that means a more literal interpretation of the Bible. It means practicing things in the old ways of this uh, Protestant movement. Okay, so every 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 denomination has evangelical and mainline versions. So there's evangelical Methodists and mainline Methodists, right? Meaning progressive Methodists, mm -hmm. okay? There's, you know, you could say the same of Lutherans, you could say the same of Presbyterians. Every denomination has more evangelical versions and more progressive versions or more mainline versions. So evangelical, can we can we substitute the word conservative? Yes, yes. Okay. And that, and it really is quite accurate to say evangelical and conservative are almost entirely synonymous in terms of this old 1700s mm -hmm. movement, right? If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.